This City Wire podcast is sponsored by Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Scottish Mortgage invests in some of the world's most promising and exceptional companies, from healthcare breakthroughs to electric vehicles to a green energy revolution. Scottish Mortgage takes stakes in businesses shaping our future economy and society. Scottish Mortgage is considered the flagship trust of Edinburgh-based investment managers Bailey Gifford and is the UK's largest investment trust. As with any investment, please note capital is at risk. To find out more, please visit scottishmortgageit.com. Hi, I'm Caroline Hark. I'm at the City Wire Impact Retreat and I'm joined with Alice Charles, who leads the city's and urban development team for the World Economic Forum. So Alice has just given a great speech on the future of cities. And as a first question, I just wanted to ask currently, what are the biggest sustainability challenges facing urban development? So um, at COP26, more than a thousand cities around the world said that they are committed to be net zero by 2050. And as part of that, they also want to have their emissions over the next decade by 2030. So I guess the biggest sources of emissions is what you have to look at if you're going to drive that transition, particularly over the next decade and as we move towards 2050. And the biggest sources of emissions are from transportation, uh, are from energy and are from buildings. And, you know, different cities have slightly different mixes, but generally they're the three biggest sources of emissions. So for cities to address sustainability, they must decarbonize their energy grid. They must find alternative sources of energy, renewable sources of energy. Um, they must decarbonize their buildings. They must retrofit their buildings. They must build buildings that are net zero carbon. They must electrify their mobility systems and have people you know, use public transport, walk and cycle, etc. But the other thing that they must do is totally overhaul their, their spatial um, system in terms of a city cannot be net zero if it's a sprawling city. Um, it needs to be a compact city to be net zero. So they also have to look at their urban planning systems and think, how can we create compact cities? And um, so how is technology being implemented kind of to create more sustainable cities? And what in your eyes has been the most impactful um, technological development? So first of all, um, technology isn't necessarily new to cities. We've had a smart cities movement, uh, which you know really has been introduced in cities over the last 15 years. But that movement was more about technology companies selling technology to cities. Um, and then what we did see was, you know, solutions were implemented, but they were not scaled. Most projects failed at, at the pilot stage. And that was largely because it was technology companies thinking they understood what were the problems of cities and providing solutions that, of course, weren't necessarily applicable in all contexts. So that has been turned on its head. And now what we're seeing is this greater movement within cities to outcomes-based approaches. So basically, cities are thinking about, well, what do our citizens need and how can technology help? What does our city administration need to be overhauled and how can technology help? So they're very much thinking of the role of technology as enablers. And the same is true in relation to the providers of infrastructure and buildings in cities. They're thinking of the role of technology as an enabler. So I suppose um, if I give one example of how technology is being used, technology is being used in buildings to a much greater extent. Since the pandemic, we've seen a greater uptake of prop tech technology in the real estate sector. But if we think about an individual building, 
if you retrofit your building to you know, be more energy efficient, so you address your operational emissions, you can use technology to monitor your building. You can look at occupancy of your building. Nobody is in a particular room, the heat goes off, the light goes off. So you know, that's an example. You can use technology to monitor air quality within a building. So you can solve for health challenges. So what I would say is technology is being used to improve efficiency and has the opportunity to um, you know, increase the returns on your investment if adequately used. The other side is that the cities are you know, really trying to make data-driven um, decisions. So they're analyzing data, both from citizens, both city data, commercial data, to think about how they can uh, offer infrastructure and services in a more smart and effective way. So we're seeing a much greater focus on um, analysis of data to make evidence-based decisions and ultimately inform some of the technological solutions and infrastructure and service solutions that are being offered in cities. In your speech, you, you, you mentioned the affordability crisis and you know the, the impact um, of COVID. So, for example, you mentioned that contagion was worse in low-income communities related to poor, poor quality housing and, and overcrowding. So with that kind of in mind, do you think that when it comes um, to making ESG investments towards our cities, would you be able to elaborate on the fact that you feel that the S is often overlooked? Yeah. Um, so first of all, the affordability crisis is not new. Yes, it's been exacerbated by COVID-19, but as somebody said to me, uh, you know, the affordability crisis in the UK has been around for 30 years. Completely agree. And that is the case for most cities around the world. And what we've seen, particularly coming up to election cycles, you know, a piecemeal solution will be introduced, but it's not a holistic solution. So to address the affordable housing crisis, you really need holistic solutions that focus on the challenges, both from the supply side and the demand side, and focus on, on resolving those particular challenges. But COVID-19 has exacerbated the problem in that, um, you know, many people uh, lost their jobs. And we often see many of those people lived in underserved neighborhoods. They were in the service sector, the manufacturing sector, et cetera, and they, they lost their jobs during COVID-19. So they then find themselves needing social and affordable housing. So that, you know, is one outcome. And um, also we have seen the inadequacy of the housing that is provided in our cities because particularly people in, in underserved communities had uh, you know, a greater propensity to get COVID-19. And that's often because they're living in very overcrowded conditions, you know, far too many people in the accommodation um, and also because of the poor ventilation and quality of the building. So we, we've seen the crisis get worse, but we've also seen people who should, uh, by nature of the job that they're doing, the, the wages that they're earning, realistically be able to aspire to own a home, no longer be able to aspire to own a home. So the house prices have soared and the affordability gap has got much greater. So we do need to double down on addressing affordable housing. But of course, affordable housing is not the only um, inequality that exists in our cities. There's unequal access to education, unequal access to health. If you look at OECD data, for example, and you start to compare the number of intensive care beds across countries and um, the number of hospital beds across countries generally, there's this huge disparity. Intensive care beds in Europe, you see, for example, Germany at the top, 
and the UK would be at the other end of the spectrum in terms of the number of intensive care beds that are available. And of course, that impacts outcomes. And the same with general hospital beds. So we do need to double down in terms of providing equal access to social and community infrastructure. In relation to investors, they normally don't invest in social community and recreational infrastructure. They don't invest in housing. If they do invest in housing, they invest at the upper end of the market where there's oversupply already. They don't invest in the middle and lower end of the market. So there's, and if you look at demographics, demographics are telling us that's where the population is going to be. That's where the need is going to be. So there's an opportunity to invest. Um, but equally, we do need to be providing the facilities that people need to provide them with the quality of life that they need. So again, there's an opportunity to invest. And this actually meets the S and ESG. The S and ESG is being interpreted as diversity on boards, diversity of recruitment within organizations. It's not. It's about delivering inclusive infrastructure and services in our communities. And that's how cities are interpreting it. So there's definitely a role for investors to double down and focus on investing in the S and ESG, which is investing in social community and recreational infrastructure and addressing this inequality crisis that we see in our cities. Yeah, so you, so you mentioned this, um, the term inclusivity, and um, I was just wondering, you know, what does an inclusive city look like um, and how can we make sure that urban infrastructure development is more inclusive? So the very first thing that you need to think about is who's actually being excluded. So who are the groups within your city who are vulnerable to being excluded? That's young children. Often we don't consult with young children when we're thinking about our cities of tomorrow. It's the elderly, it's the disabled, it's migrants, it's women, it's time poor urban residents. It's, so it's a variety of different uh, groups who are vulnerable to being excluded. We need to understand that. We need to understand why they are vulnerable to being excluded and excluded within our cities. Then you need to look at how they're excluded. Are they excluded spatially? Are they excluded economically? Are they excluded socially? Are they uh, excluded institutionally? So spatially, for example, is um, it, in terms of the way we plan our built environment, we see exclusion. You see, for example, that a, a government may decide to just build social and affordable housing in one part of the city. It's not integrated housing. They're not creating a balanced community from the word go. So they're actually excluding people from, um, from the wider city. Economically, it may be that, you know, if you live in an underserved neighborhood, you're also living in a mobility desert, so you don't have access to public transit to actually get you to the place where there is economic opportunity. So by virtue of providing connectivity from that neighborhood to the center of your city, for example, your central business district, you provide the potential for people to be able to access unemployment or access employment, I should say, and, you know, have greater economic opportunity. Socially, it's about the provision of the services that you need to uh, sustain your life, to live, work and play within, um, within your, your community. But institutionally, it's to think about how are institutions set up to exclude people from society and what do we need to do differently to ensure that people are included. So inclusion is about understanding the groups in your society who are vulnerable to being excluded, then how they're being excluded spatially, economically, socially, institutionally, and looking at remedies to rectify that. 
And um, so in your speech, you've also, um, you also talked about the implications of the war in Ukraine. Um, so is the war in Ukraine going to affect kind of urban development? And do you think that it's kind of stalled or accelerated the move to renewable energy? So, um, first of all, it's, it's very sad that we have a war on the con- in the continent of Europe and we all hope that uh, this war will end as, as soon as possible. But it has many implications. Um, we are seeing the energy security crisis. So, you know, there's many countries, particularly in Europe, very reliant upon gas from Russia. Um, that security crisis has caused mayhem in the global markets. It's increased the overall cost of energy. Um, and that's affecting us all, all around the world. Um, and that has implications in terms of cost of production, because we need energy to produce anything. So we're seeing general inflation. It's also having implications in terms of food. Uh, for example, Europe is less affected because most of, of the wheat and, and sunflower oil, etc., that's produced in Russia and Ukraine primarily went to countries and cities in North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa. So the food crisis is going to be more pronounced in those countries, albeit we also consume fertilizer to grow food, particularly from Russia. Um, and that's become more scarce. It's um, also, you know, much more expensive. So the ability of uh, all countries to grow food is being reduced. So in that sense, we are likely to see you know, less supply, increased costs in relation to food because uh, a lack of supply of the ingredients, but also the production of food is getting more expensive. So we're likely to see an increase in cost. But for the built environment sector, um, the, the implications relate to the supply of materials and the consequent cost of construction increases. So already we had an affordable housing challenge and you know, a big part of that is land cost and a big part of that is construction cost. And now we're facing into a shortage of materials, uh, metals, um, you know, timber from Russia and Belarus is a complex product, so it has to be removed from supply chains. So there's less supply of timber available in construction. Um, and we're also seeing increased energy costs. So the actual cost associated with manufacturing materials has gone up exponentially. So all of that gives rise to an increase in the cost of construction, which makes the affordability challenge even greater. Um, and I think it will likely result in, in some developers saying, okay, time to press pause. This is crazy. Um, we need to wait until you know the, the situation stabilizes. And on the other hand, where developments go ahead, it's going to increase the cost of construction to a great extent, which we will all feel. What can investors do to ensure that cities are kind of heading in the right direction? So the first thing is, um, I did mention in my speech the you know financial implications for cities and governments of COVID-19, that they've seen their revenues decrease, they've seen their, um, their uh, costs increase, some cases, returns on investment have actually reduced. And what we're seeing is budget deficits, both at city government level and national government level. National government doesn't have the finances to give to local government to, to um, fill this gap. So government has to work with private and institutional investors to get the, the money that they need to deliver the infrastructure that they require and deliver the transition that they require. 
What I would say to investors is be patient. Um, you know, government doesn't understand where you're coming from. They don't understand your perspective. They don't understand that you're looking for bankable projects with the right structure and risk profile. Um, they don't know what that means. And in many cases, they don't have the capacity to know what that means. So what I would say is you need to work with them very early on to tell them what you're looking for to attract investment. You know, what type of balancing of risk are you looking for? What type of structure of project? So they understand the capacity they need to put in the system to deliver that. So work with them, help them understand how you can bundle assets, how you can create a green print for investment. I gave the example of Glasgow earlier, but how you can do that. So definitely work with them. The second thing to say to investors is there is real opportunities and focus on investing in retrofitting um, existing assets, particularly buildings, um, and delivering net zero carbon buildings and infrastructure in the future. If you don't do that, you'll find yourself with stranded assets. So be very careful in relation to that. I also would say to investors, please don't forget the S in ESG. The S is not just about diversity on boards and diversity in your workforces. It's actually about delivering inclusive environments. Um, and also highlight the fact that technology has the ability to increase returns on investment. So, you know, make sure that you are, uh, you know, leveraging technology. Don't forget the opportunity presented by nature-based solutions particularly to address climate resilience in cities and also to address health. Insurance companies are already looking at that, but also, so think about it. There is return associated with nature. Um, and I guess finally, I would say uh, Ukraine will need our help in terms of reconstruction. And uh, countries will be asked to provide a lot of that support, but private and institutional investors will also be called upon, uh, whether it's to provide funds to multilateral development banks, et cetera, or, you know, direct funds. So I think that all of us will be called upon to help this major reconstruction effort uh, in a country on our continent for the very first time since the Second World War. Well, thank you so much, Alice. Those are, those are all the questions that we have time for today. But, but yeah, thanks so much. Thank you. This CityWire podcast is sponsored by Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Scottish Mortgage invests in some of the world's most promising and exceptional companies, from healthcare breakthroughs to electric vehicles to a green energy revolution. Scottish Mortgage takes stakes in businesses shaping our future economy and society. As with any investment, capital is at risk.